Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Comics historians generally agree that the Silver Age of Comics began in July 1956 when Showcase No. 4 went on sale, featuring the debut of a new Flash, police scientist Barry Allen. Dissenting opinions usually cite Detective Comics No. 255 from November 1955, which had a backup story that introduced the Martian Manhunter, or, as he was called then, the Manhunter from Mars. From Showcase No. 4, It wasn't long before the series introduced new, updated versions of Green Lantern, Aquaman, The Atom, and The Spectre. Showcase also gave us the debuts of The Challengers of the Unknown, The Metal Men, Adam Strange, Enemy Ace, and Lois Lane's solo series. And that's not to mention cult favorites like Batlash, The Inferior Five, Firehair, or my personal favorite, Jason's Quest, a three-issue epic that was billed as, quote, the unusual story of a boy, his bike, his search, unquote. And after three issues, young Jason was never seen again. You could easily make the case that, years before the dawn of the Marvel Age of Comics, Showcase was the most transformative series of its era. Yes, The Brave and the Bold did come along a little earlier than Showcase, but that series focused on adventure heroes without superpowers or costumes until the Justice League of America made its debut in 1960, four years after The Flash came a-running. Of course, Showcase had plenty of duds along the way. Issue number one starred someone called Fireman Farrell in a feature billed on the cover as Showcase Starring Firefighters. And there were lots of heroes that ran a few issues and then moved into their own relatively short-lived series. Heroes like Rip Hunter, Time Master, or the Sea Devils. And there were returning heroes like Tommy Tomorrow and the Planeteers and Cave Carson Inside Earth whose adventures didn't start in Showcase or spin out of that series at the time, but were remembered fondly enough that they made return appearances in more recent comics. Showcase gave almost every potential star a multi-issue start, so the bean counters at DC Comics would have time to get sales numbers from the newsstand distributors and then make informed decisions about which heroes deserved their own titles. Responsibility for the stories in Showcase moved around among the DC editorial offices, which resulted in a near miss when editor Robert Kaniger found out very close to the final deadline that he was due for an issue. That led to him and artists Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito holing up in a hotel for a few days to concoct the entire first adventure of the Metal Men, sending out for sandwiches and coffee and sleeping only when they couldn't stay awake another moment. In the late 1960s, DC's approach to design and editorial began to change. Artist Carmine Infantino was brought on staff to become DC's first cover designer and would soon move up to editorial director. DC hired artist Joe Orlando as an editor in 1966, who provided a new approach to humor and horror, often in the same comic. Editor and artist Dick Giordano joined the DC staff in 1968, and with him came several artists and writers from his years running editorial at Charlton Comics. The new editors were willing to take chances their predecessors wouldn't, like giving certain talent a chance to try something 
different, which goes a long way toward explaining the one and only adventure of Dolphin in the pages of Showcase number 79. The story is written and illustrated by J. Scott Pike, an artist who entered the field in the post-World War II era that saw an influx of new comics artists. Like many of his contemporaries, Pike drew whatever came his way in the 1950s. Westerns, crime stories, war epics, love stories, jungle adventures, you name it. He drew mostly for Atlas, the company that would rebrand itself as Marvel in the early 1960s, and his work there included co-creating Jan of the Jungle. J. Scott Pike shifted over to DC Comics in the early 1960s, mostly drawing romance comics, until 1968. At that point, he seems to have convinced editor Dick Giordano, he seems to have convinced editor Dick Giordano to run with his idea for a story he'd write and draw starring an underwater adventurer called Dolphin. The story stars Chris Landau, a naval diver who's trying to recover top-secret documents from a ship that sank at the end of World War II. But as he and his partner try to find a way through the ship's hull, they see what seems to be a young woman swimming nearby with no breathing apparatus. With a little help from their fellow sailors, they capture the woman, who turns out not to speak English or any other language. After a little while on their ship, her lips start to turn blue, and she escapes back into the water. The ship's doctor says she must be part fish because he spotted what looked like gills on her neck. The divers go back to their job with the added pressure of a storm that's threatening to push the ship off an undersea shelf and into a much deeper chasm. The mystery woman returns, and Chris decides to call her Dolphin. The commander of the mission realizes that someone small could squeeze into the sunken ship and recover the packets without having to cut through the hull. Chris talks Dolphin into helping, but while she's inside the ship, it slips down into the deep ravine. Chris believes that Dolphin is lost forever, but then she resurfaces with the documents in hand, sealed in waterproof envelopes. After some celebrating, Chris promises to take her home to San Diego with him. But Dolphin realizes that they are too different, and she dives off the ship again, only to disappear into the storm once more. The story is called The Fantasy at Fourteen Fathoms, and it's not much of a story. It only runs 18 pages, and three of them are two-thirds pages with paid ads at the bottom. To round things out, the issue includes a reprint of an early Aquaman story, as well as a text piece called The Wonderful World of Comics that's all about fanzines. If anything sold this issue of Showcase, it has to be the cover, which features a pretty sexy image of Dolphin swimming down in the water in her cut-off jean shorts and sleeveless shirt. And when I say the cover is sexy, it, and the whole issue, is about as sexy as a contemporaneous TV show like I Dream of Genie. Pike's art reminds me a bit of Alex Toth, a bit of Bill Drought, maybe a little of Mort Meskin. Mostly it looks like its own thing, the kind of art that builds on the early influence of a master cartoonist like Milton Kniff, then grows into a style all its own. I also have to mention the very distinctive logo, which has a real pop art feel. It's all lowercase, and rather than your typical hand-drawn logo, it's an actual typeface, a sans-serif font that looks like it could be Futura. The letters are bounced, that is, each is on a different level, which creates a wave effect. It looks unlike any logo I can think of from that era or even since then. Getting back to Showcase for a moment, around this time the series shifted for 10 issues or so from multi-issue runs to single-issue stories. 
and most of those characters ran straight into their own solo series, including The Creeper, Anthro, Hawk and the Dove, Batlash, and Angel and the Ape. None of those series lasted long, but of those, only Johnny Double joined Dolphin in the One Issue and That's It Club. So why didn't Dolphin continue in the 60s? Were the sales figures on this issue that bad? Did J. Scott Pike decide to stick to drawing and not writing? Did the higher-ups at DC hate this issue? We have no way of knowing. By the 1990s, some of the fans who liked Dolphin's 1968 story were working in the comics field, which led to her getting an origin story, appearing in Aquaman, marrying the former Aqualad and having a baby, and even becoming a Black Lantern. It seems like a lot of baggage to hand to a character with such humble beginnings. Before I wrap up, I have to give a shout-out to my friend Cardi Angelo, owner of Earth 2 Comics in Sherman Oaks and Northridge, California, who loaned me a copy of Showcase Number 79 for this episode. Carr is also my partner in another podcast we do called Defender's Dialogue that's dedicated to Marvel's 1970s non-team. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.